Thank you, everyone, for coming in here. Today's reading, July 15th, 365-day Bible. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord God, for being with us. Thank you for carrying us through all thick and thin and being here for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you said you will bless us with good as we get into your word, Lord, and prosper us, Lord, with good as we get into your word, Lord. We thank you that that's evident, and Lord, it's just part of your nature, Lord, to love and to bless as the Father does. We praise you, and we thank you, and we glorify you, and give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. July 15, 1 Chronicles chapter 19 to 2130. Sometime after this, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun became king. David said, I'm going to show loyalty to Hanun because his father. Nahash was always loyal to me. So David sent messengers to express sympathy to Hanun about his father's death. But when David's ambassadors arrived in the land of Ammon, the Ammonite commander said to Hanun, Do you really think these men are coming here to honor your father? No, David has sent them to spy out the land so they can come in and conquer it. So Hanun seized David's ambassadors and shaved them, cut off their robes at the buttocks, and sent them back to David in shame. When David heard what had happened to the men, he sent messengers to tell them, Stay at Jericho until your beard grows out, and then come back. For they left deep shame because they felt deep shame because of their appearance. When the people of Ammon realized how seriously they had angered David, Hanan and the Ammonites sent 75,000 pounds of silver to hire chariots and charioteers from Aram, Nahadaim, Aram, Makah, and Zobah. They also hired 32,000 chariots and secured the support of the king of Makkah and his army. These force camps, these forces camped at Mediba, where they were joined by the Ammonite troops that Hanun had recruited from his own towns. When David heard about this, he sent Joab and all his warriors to fight them. The Ammonite troops came out and drew up their battle lines at the entrance of the city, while the other kings positioned themselves to fight in open fields. When Joab saw that he would have to fight on both the front and the rear, he chose some of the Israelites' elite troops and placed them under his personal command to fight the Armenians in the fields. He left the rest of the army under the command of his brother, Abishai, who was to attack the Ammonites. If the Armenians are too strong for me, then come over and help me, Joab told his brother. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will help you. Be courageous. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. When Job and his troops attacked, the Armenians began to run away. And when the Ammonites saw that the Armenians were running, they also ran from Abishai and retreated into the city. Then Joah returned to Jerusalem. The Armenians now realized that they were no match for Israel, so they sent messengers and summoned additional Armenian troops from the other side of the Euphrates River. 
These truths were under the command of Shobak, the commander of Hadad-Dezer's forces. When David heard what was happening, he mobilized all Israel, crossed the Jordan River, and positioned his troops in battle formation. Then David engaged the Armenians in battle, and they fought against him. But again, the Armenians fled from the Israelites. This time, David's forces killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers, including Shobak, the commander of the army. When Hadadezer's allies saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they surrounded, they surrendered to David and became his subjects. After that, the Armenians were no longer willing to help the Ammonites. Chapter 20. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, Joab led the Israelite army in successful attacks against the land of the Ammonites. In the process, he laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. When David arrived at Rabbah, he removed the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. The crown was made of gold and set with gems, and he found that it weighed 75 pounds. David took a vast amount of plunder from the city. He also made slaves of the people of Rabbah and forced them to labor with Saul's iron picks and iron axes. This is how David dealt with the people of all the Ammonite towns. Then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. After this, war broke out with the Philistines, Agizer, as they fought, Sebekiah from Husha killed Sap, a descendant of the giants, and also the Philistines were subdued. During another battle with the Philistines, Elhanan, son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath of Algat. The handle of Lami's spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. In another battle with the Philistines at the Gat, they encounter a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all, who was also a descendant of the giants. But when he defeated, but when he defiled and taunted Israel, he was killed by Jonathan, the son of David's brother Shimea. These Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gat. But David and his warriors killed them. Chapter 21. Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commander of the army, Take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north, and bring me a report so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But the king insisted that they take the census, so Joab traveled throughout all of Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of people to David. There were 1,100,000 warriors in all of Israel who could handle a sword and 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what king, what the king had made him do. God was very displeased, displeased with the census and he punished Israel for it. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by taking this census 
Please forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. Then the Lord spoke to God, David's seer. This is what the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments and I will inflict it on you. So God came to David and said, these are the choices the Lord has given you. You may choose three years of famine, three months of destruction by the sword of your enemies, or three days of severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation throughout the land of Israel. Decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to God, to God, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 people died as a result. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But just as the angel was preparing to destroy it, the Lord relented and said to the deaf angel, Stop! That is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was standing by the treasure floor of Arunah, the Jebusites. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn, reaching out over Jerusalem. So David and the leaders of Israel put on burlap to show their deep distress and fell face down to the ground. And David said to God, I am the one who called for the counsel, for the census. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your angel fall against me. Let your anger fall against me and my family, but do not destroy your people. Then the angel of the Lord told God to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arahunah, the Jebusites. So David went up to, what, to do what the Lord had commanded him through God. Aranua, who was busy threshing wheat at that time, turned and saw the angel there. His four sons who were with him ran away and hid. When Arunuah saw David approaching, he left his threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. David said to Arunuah, Let me buy this threshing floor from you at its full price. Then I will build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my Lord. Take it, the king, and use it as you wish. Arunuah said to David, I will give the auction for the burnt offerings and the threshing board for wood to build a fire in the altar and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. But King David replied to Arauna, No, I insist on buying it for the full price. I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. So David get Arauna 600 pieces of gold in payment for the threshing floor. David built an altar there to the Lord's and sacrificed burnt offerings, but peace offerings. And when David prayed, the Lord answered him by sending fire from heaven to burn up the offering of the altar. Then the Lord spoke to the angel who put the sword back in his sheet. 
Then David saw that the Lord had answered his prayer. He offered sacrifices there at Araunas threshing floor. At that time, the tabernacle of the Lord in the altar of burnt offering that Moses had made in the wilderness were located at the place of worship in Gibeon. But David was not able to go there to inquire of God because he was terrified by the drawn sword of the angel of the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful readings. There's a lot here. And mentioning the uh, three giants like Goliath, and today people have dug up skulls and big old giant bones of uh, people just like that, and helmets and spears. So, amen. A true story. It's in the Bible. Must be true, huh? All right, let's just move right along. Let me read the First Chronicles, the uh, study. Our society places great emphasis upon individual responsibility. To imagine 70,000 people dying for one person's sins seem unfair to us. However, God bound us together interdependently. In ancient times, people understood this and expected to share in the success of their leaders and as well as their failures and punishments. Whether it is fair or not, the group usually suffers because of the sins of its leaders. Similarly, our actions always affect other people, whether we want them or not. Sin has a domino effect. Once a sin is committed, consequences follow. God will forgive our sins when we ask, but the consequences have already been set in motion. Only by God's grace are the effects of sin thwarted, and God's grace did interrupt sin's fallout. David pleaded for mercy, and God responded by stopping the angels before his mission of death was complete. The consequences of David's sin, however, had already caused severe damage. God will always forgive our sins and will often intervene to make their bitter consequences less severe, but scars will often remain. These scars remind us of the power of sin, but they heal, and that should remind us of God's grace. Amen. Moving on to Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to chapter 3, verse 8. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremonial circumcision. Not a true Jew is one who hears whose heart is right with God. Not no. A true Jew, excuse me, no, a true Jew is the one whose heart is right before God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? 
Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true, and the scripture says about him. You will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say, our sinfulness served a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonestly highlighted his truthfulness to bring him more glory? As some people even slander us by claiming, we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. The study for Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, To be a Jew meant you were in God's family and an heir of his promises. The Jews had come to believe that they could guarantee their inheritance from God by obeying the law and fulfilling requirements, like circumcision. Yet Paul made it clear that membership in God's family is based on internal qualities, not external ones. Attending church or being baptized, confirmed, or accepted by members are all external qualifications, just as circumcision was an external sign for the Jews. God desired our hearts, devotion, and obedience, and he always has Sidorami, 1016, Jeremiah 4.4. All whose hearts are right with God are part of God's family. So what does it does what does a right heart look like? A person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. What external signs are you doing for others to see? What eternal qualities are you cultivating for God to see? Amen. Beautiful writing. Praying the Psalm. We pray the Psalms 11 with confidence in the Lord's permanent control. We rest in God's steady character amid the commotion of sin and its consequences around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We pray, for Lord, we thank you for your confidence, Lord, and your love. Thank you for the sin around us, Lord God, that we may shine like true receptacles in a dark world. For your glory and your honor, in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading of Psalm 11. I trust in the Lord for protection, so why do you say to me, Fly like a bird to the mountains for safety? The wicked are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. They shoot from the arrow, they shoot from the shadows at those whose hearts are right. The foundation of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone carefully, examining every person on earth. The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He has, he hates those who love violence. He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, 
punish them with scorching winds. For the righteous Lord loves justice, the virtues will see his face. The virtuous will see his face. Proverbs 19, verses 10 and 12. It isn't right for a fool to live in luxury or for a slave to rule over princes. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. The king's anger is like a lion roar, but his favor is like the dew on the grass. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for coming to today's study. May the Lord bless you.